Awesome. You can have a seat. If you will, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah chapter 40 and uh, just hold your spot there. Isaiah chapter 40 is where we're going to be. We're going to get there in just a few moments and uh, look at a couple of other passages of Scripture as well. Uh, But looking at a message that really just stands alone. I feel like uh, this, this was a, a passage of Scripture that came to mind and came to my heart earlier this week. We're not really in a series right now. We just finished up a series last Sunday looking to tentatively plan one over the next couple of Sundays. But uh, this is one that I think ties in really well with what we're going to be celebrating in the Lord's Supper here soon and uh, just a few moments. And uh, yeah, it's just a powerful, powerful passage of Scripture. So years ago when I started in ministry, um, I had graduated college, I had, had uh, not expected to go into ministry necessarily. I had planned, once I finished with my degree, that uh, I would lead Bible studies and I would plug into a local church and I would serve God that way. Had no desire to go into ministry. If you were to ask me at the place uh, when I graduated, was I going to serve on a church staff at one point? You know, at some point in my life, I'd probably have said no, don't see that one coming. But uh, over a turn of events, God just really began to steer me in that direction. And the biggest hurdle that he overcame was my desire in the first place place to actually serve in vocational ministry. And so once I graduated, it was um, a little ways after that, I guess a year and a half or so later, I, um, I, I got a, a call and an invitation to come and to um, interview with a church here across town and uh, a church called Magnolia Baptist Church. Now, I had no idea whether it was Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian, or whatever it was. It didn't, didn't matter. I just was ready to serve. And, uh, and so that was a, 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 the first position I ever ter- took. The only other position I've ever taken working on a church staff has been that one. So I'd be in that church for about six years, and my official title was the part-time youth director. That was my title. I had an office. It was about as wide as this uh, uh, table down front. That's about, and about as deep as that as well, I think. It was about the smallest room they had. And I think they cleared out the mop buckets and said, hey, it comes with an office. And so that was my first position in ministry. I was there six years working with students, middle school and high school. But every student pastor knows, Eric, correct me if I'm wrong, that you really have not earned your keep as a person who works with students in ministry until you have taken those students on an overnight rafting trip, right? Once you have accomplished that, then you can bear the title with pride that you are a student pastor, youth pastor, or part-time youth director. The only thing that comes even close would be um, a lock-in. At lock-in, you get automatic status if you survive. You can't just do it. You have to actually survive it. And so I took our students just about every year. We'd go up to Nana and we would, first year I took them, we got the, you know, the guide. And then I realized after that, you know what, we can save a lot of money because uh, we had about $21 in our youth budget, I think, for the year. And uh, let me just be the guide. <laughs> Biggest mistake in the world. Every single year I'd sit on the back of the raft, act like I knew what I was doing, and I'd get flipped off at some point during the trip. But there was one particular trip, one particular year that stood out to me that to this day is probably the funniest thing I saw. And I understand as I convey this uh, verbally, it's not going to carry the same amount of humor as if you were standing there on the spot the day that it happened. So it included one of my friends, a guy named Dave. Dave and his wife, Tanya, they were volunteers in the church. It was a small church. He, they became close friends of mine. And um, and so Dave was just kind of, he was just fun to be with. He was always, probably still is, I'm sure. <laughs> He's not in heaven yet. But he uh, just, just real, just enjoyable, just a lot of fun, a lot of energy. At this particular time, he was at the top of this hill. So we're up in kind of that North Georgia, lower part of North Carolina area, real hilly. And he's at the top of a hill where we were staying. And he thought it would be kind of fun to get everybody's attention and hoop and holler and then go running down the hill. And so I'm standing a little bit removed. And uh, even though I was single in 26 and he was married, I still had 
had a little more wisdom, at least in this spot, right, for this, because he makes a lot of noise and starts hooping and hollering and laughing. He starts down that hill. And it was about three seconds later that the pull and the draw of gravity at the bottom of that hill overwhelmed the ability of his legs to keep up. And so here he is making all this noise, and what started really well ended at the bottom of that hill with the funniest thing I had seen in a long time as he went head over heels, just rolling completely out of control until he finally came to an end. I was no help whatsoever. I was just laughing. I couldn't do anything else but laugh. It was the funniest thing I had seen in a long time. And I think about that specifically, that experience. And, uh, and in, that, in that event, it was, it was so much, just so funny but I would have to say over the last 18 months, for a lot of us, we have experienced much the same thing, except without the laughs. Because over the last 18 months, in a lot of ways, what has happened is it seems like there has become this valley, right? And the draw in the bottom of that valley has in many ways seemingly overwhelmed our ability to be able to stay upright. There are people in this room today that are, stu- that are school teachers. And over the last 18 months, what you are doing now today is vastly different than what you were doing just a couple of years ago in the classroom. To the point to where when you show up for work in your classroom, you have no idea if the same group of students are going to be sitting in front of you as were there just the previous week before. Some may get pulled out because of quarantine. Others may test positive, and that's been the case over the last 18 months if you've been able to be in a classroom at all. Others may get pulled out that very day, and they were with you in the morning, but then they got a call that some family member's test came back positive, and then they're gone for the rest of the day in the next week and a half. Others of you, your experience has been looking at your classroom students of about 25 to 30 children each given one-thirtieth of the screen on your laptop. That's been your experience, and you wonder, is what I'm doing even making a difference? Others of you work in the medical field. You may be, carry a variety of different titles, and you've done this perhaps for some of you for years, if not decades. And yet over the last 18 months, what you have experienced is this overwhelming draw to the valley, and it seems as though you're out of control, where you have dealt with disillusionment and discouragement, and you've wondered if what you're doing makes any kind of a difference whatsoever, to the point to where for some of you, you've come this close to throwing in the towel and say, you know what, I think I'll try a new career soon. And you're at a place to where you're wondering if you can even make it any further. Others of you are business owners, and you started with that business, and you put the sign in the ground, and you started up your brand new website, and you were incredibly excited, and business was going really well until 18 months ago or at some point over these 18 months to the point to where you don't even know now if you're going to have enough workers to stay open for the next week, much less the next year. I was across the street at McDonald's last week or a couple of weeks ago or so, and I was at the drive-thru, and you know, because you can't go in anywhere, it seems like, anymore. And I was there at the drive-thru. I noticed there was a piece of paper on the drive-thru. And um, some of you are my fellow brothers and sisters in McDonald's. And um, you, you do the same thing as I do at times. And uh, there was a sign on the drive-thru. And it, it's, it was from the day before, actually. It said, we'll be closing at 2 p.m. today because of a lack of employees. It's probably the largest restaurant chain in the world. I've eaten at a McDonald's in Manila. I mean, they're obviously everywhere, and they can't stay open past 2 o'clock. 
And that seems to be the case almost everywhere. Those of you that are business leaders have felt the pull to the bottom of the hill where you feel out of control, discouraged, fearful, not wondering what's going to come. For some of you and your families, you felt the same thing. Because of the political climate, because of the stressors and the anxiety that comes from dealing with COVID because of a host of other things, perhaps the differences of opinion. There'll be people whose spot will be absent at Thanksgiving lunch this year because you're not able to really be close and still have unity, right? There's been a family divide. The pull to the bottom of the hill has been so strong. It feels at times perhaps overwhelming. It seems as though statistics that come out over and over and over seem to paint much the same picture. One in 10 U.S. adults reported symptoms of anxiety or depression in 2019. After COVID, that number rose from one in 10 showing anxiety or depressive symptoms to four in 10. In fact, because of COVID, there was almost a 20% increase in pediatric mental health emergency events. 20% increase because of COVID, children ages 5 to 11. And it seems as though that valley at the bottom of the hill gets stronger and stronger and stronger. You throw into the mix the isolation that comes with it. You throw into the mix the sense of loss that comes with it. As some of you, perhaps in a group this size, have had to make visits with family members in the hospital or perhaps even have had to attend funerals for loved ones or friends and you couldn't be there in person because it wasn't allowed and it broke your heart. You throw into that mix everything that's going on in Afghanistan and everything else around the world, and it seems as though we've come to a place to where we at times have asked the question, what can we do? You throw on top of all that, now let's just call this the second wave of COVID. You know, for me and for, for us, I, I don't want to speak for the other guys I serve with as pastors or for our whole staff, but I think I can accurately say that all of us, at least here, and I think most anybody else who served in a church can say that that first wave that came 18 months ago, it, it was, yes, it was frightening, and yes, there were a lot of adjustments that had to come and, and a lot that we had to learn, but there was a, almost a sense of, in a, in a weird way, you, you, were, you were almost running on adrenaline because it was a time to be innovative and it was a time to, how can we leverage this crisis to point people to the gospel, right? And we were all running on this excitement and, and for me, running on that excitement of, man, what can we do differently? How can we find these niches of open doors where we can get the gospel in there and how can we be creative as a church ministry? And, and there was this adrenaline that went with it and then everything began to return to normal seemingly and now we come back to this next wave and there seems to be almost this sense of what can we do next? And you almost feel, and this is not a bad thing, but you almost feel bankrupt as to I have nothing to bring to the table that can help anyone in any innovative fashion to come closer to Jesus. And that's not necessarily a bad thing because what it may do is force us to rely on him like we never have before, right? but it hasn't been easy for a lot of people. You know, in Isaiah, Isaiah is writing to a group of people who had also felt the draw to the bottom of the hill. That was more than they could adequately keep up with. The setting in Isaiah, when we get to chapter 40, is that Isaiah is a prophet. He lived 
700 years before Jesus would come. So 2,700 years ago, he's writing these words to his prophecy, right? We have captured in the book that bear his name, that bears his name. And um, <clears throat> 2,700 years later, up to where we are now in the 21st century, what is written in Isaiah is as applicable <laughs> and as true as it is today as it was back then when he first spoke and wrote these words. But Isaiah was writing to a group of people called the people of Judah. They were God's people. Now remember, he's a prophet, so he's looking ahead. Isaiah was living in the 700s BC. The nation of Israel to the north, God's people, were going to be facing exile during Isaiah's lifetime. The reason they would be taken off into captivity by the enemy, the Assyrians, was because they had rebelled against God. They had sinned against God. They, had, they were idolatrous, and they were replacing God. And the people of Israel, they said all the right things, right? They, they still went to the temple, they still worshiped, they still knew the vocabulary, but on in the inside, their hearts were so incredibly far from God. And God would send them prophets and say, you got to come home, you got to come home, you got to come home. And they would say, no, 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 no. And so finally, discipline came. And for Israel to the north in 721 BC, it came in the form of the Assyrians, the enemy who came and hauled them off to captivity. So there is Isaiah, he's right in the midst of that historical timeline, and he's looking ahead about 135 years at a yet, the time yet to come to the people of Judah down south, God's people. And he begins to prophesy that this is going to happen to you if you don't come back to God. And it's not because he doesn't love you, and it's not because he's against you, it's because he does love you. And he doesn't want you to stay on this path, that if you're not going to listen, then he's going to have to discipline and so Isaiah is speaking to the people of Judah at a day that was yet to come, and he's speaking to them as though it had already occurred. And he's telling them what to expect, and he's telling them how they're going to feel, and he's telling them what they need to do when they get here. It would be such difficult time. In, in the book of Psalm, you don't have to turn here, but in the book of Psalms chapter 137, we see a little bit of a glimpse of how bad it would be whenever the people of Judah would go into exile. Psalm 137, verse 1, the psalmist would write, By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and we wept. I mean, they are drug out of their homeland. Everything they've known has been lost. They said, We wept when we remembered Zion, when we remembered our homeland. Upon the willows in the midst of it, we hung our harps. Why would they do that? Because they had no song to sing. Verse 3, there our captors demanded of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? You know, and for many people today, for many believers, I think, they've come to that same exact place where we have faith in God, you have strong faith, you have a relationship with Jesus, but maybe there's been that event in your life where you finally crossed the line and you felt like, how much more of this can I take? And who can I turn to that's going to give me the help and that's going to give me the hope in the midst of this? That's what Isaiah answers here in Isaiah chapter 40. And he answers it in stunning fashion. So let's jump in in verse 27, Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah is writing to Judah at a time yet to come of things they need to remember when they get there. And he says the same thing to us today. He says in verse 27, Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice that is due me escapes the notice of my God? 
He says, why do you say my way is hidden from the Lord? Have you ever come to that place that was so hard in your life where you felt like your way was hidden from the Lord? Have you ever come to that place where it was so low and it was so dark and the pull of the valley was so strong that it brought you down to a place as a Christian, right? As a follower of Jesus with a strong faith, one who serves, the one who loves, the one who sings, right? And yet you found yourself at a place so low to where you began to wonder when your head was on the pillow at night and no one else was around but you and your thoughts, you began to wonder, does God even really see me? And does he really know my struggle? You ever been there? You ever been to that place? Isaiah says to Judah, why do you say my way is hidden from the Lord and the justice that is due to me escapes the notice of of my God. It's interesting he would use that word justice. A lot of times we think we deserve justice, right? When in reality, let's be honest, we don't want to go down the justice road. <laughs> we just don't. We don't want to start shaking our fist at God and say, God, you need to give me what I deserve. Right here, right now. Let's just bring it, right? Just bring it, God. Give me what I deserve. You don't, don't pray that, okay? Now, I know if you did, God's going to show grace and mercy because he's not up there waiting to hit the button, right? That's not the way he is. But it's funny that for Judah, they would say, where is our justice? The whole concept of the Lord's Supper, right, is the fact that God displayed his justice that we deserved on Jesus in the first place. That's why we celebrate this particular time. But Judah is asking, you know, you know there, there's going to be a point when they come and, and, and the valley is so low, they're going to cry out for justice, feeling that they deserve it. Isaiah responds in verse 28, to those who feel hidden from the Lord, to those who feel like God doesn't see them in their struggle or understand in verse 28, he says, this is a great reminder. He says in verse 28, do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. What Isaiah is doing here is he throws out three specific descriptors of who God is, and they're all amazing. He calls him, number one, the everlasting God. He calls him, number two, the Lord. And then, number three, he calls him creator. And it seems as though the context here, he's saying to Judah, remember, this hasn't happened yet. It's like Isaiah's telling them, when you get there in the midst of the valley, you're going to begin to question whether God even sees you. And when you do, don't forget who you serve and who you've known for all these years, that he is, number one, the everlasting God. He is without beginning, and he is without end. He cannot be fully explained. He cannot be fully comprehended. You cannot possibly know him completely this side of heaven. He is so far above and beyond beyond you. He is transcendent, and yet he loves you, and he is full of grace, and he is here, and he is near. He is the everlasting God, and he holds everything in the power of his hands. When you get there, and the pull of the valley is stronger than your feet can, can, can possibly manage, and when you begin to go horizontal, and you're not staying vertical anymore, just remember there is an everlasting God who even there holds you. And he's not done yet. Then he says, and don't forget, he's not just everlasting God. He's Lord. In your Bible, if you look closely, it's probably written in all caps, right? Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. When you see that in your Bible in the Old Testament, it's a reference to a specific Hebrew word, the word Yahweh. That word Yahweh, whenever we see that word for God, it is the most common word for God in the Old Testament. It is a reflection of his personal name. When you read the word Lord, if, if, if you were to meet God, right? I know this is kind of weird, but if you were to meet God, you know, you're walking downtown and he walks up and says, hey, 
I'm God. But he introduces himself. I know it's weird. Just follow me here. If he were to kind of put out his, his hand and he were to say, hey, I'm the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. You know what he's saying? He's saying, I want to know you because I'm a personal God. I'm the everlasting God without beginning, without end. And I'm not here to stay out in the distance somewhere to be gazed at and worship from a distance. No, I want to know you and I want you to know me. And Isaiah says, not only is he just, is he the everlasting God or the Lord, he's also the creator. Everything we see, everything that exists, everything in our lives, everything in creation was spoken into existence. Isaiah says, as he describes him at the end of verse 28, he says, he does not become weary or tired. What's the greatest miracle that's ever been performed? What would come to your mind? Many of you would probably say it's got to be the resurrection. Whether it's Jesus resurrecting Lazarus, whether it's Jesus resurrecting the temple uh, uh, official Jairus' daughter, whether it's Jesus raising the son of the widow in the city of Nain, or even Jesus' own resurrection, that's got to be the best miracle of all, right? Most of us would probably say that, but I would agree with a fellow named uh, Frank Turek, who would say, this is all speculative, it's all opinion, right? But he would say, and I would agree, now the greatest miracle of all, miracle of all is creation. Because when you look at resurrection, you're taking a dead body and you're restoring it to life. God did that. But when God created, in Genesis 1 and 2, <laughs> He created out of nothing. I mean, there was nothing but God. And when he said, let there be light, boom, there was light. And for six days he created, culminating in mankind, Adam and Eve, and eventually you and me. And when he created, as it describes in real true fashion in Genesis 1 and 2 and elsewhere in Scripture, when he created, he created out of nothing. That is the greatest miracle of all. And Isaiah refers to God as the creator, and he says that God, everlasting God, the Lord, the creator, he doesn't become weary or tired. He's not in the valley, right? He doesn't get beat down because he's a medical professional and all of this stuff is just, is just weighing on you and driving you to the valley. He, he's not in the valley because he's a business person who doesn't know what to do next. He's not in the valley because he's a married person, a husband or a wife who doesn't know how they're going to fix the issues in their marriage. He's not in the valley except because he goes there for you. That's why he's in the valley. Not because he's tired, and when you get there, you look over, and there's God saying, whoo, it's tough in here, isn't it, right? The only reason he's in the valley is to lead you through it. <laughs> Isaiah says, <clears throat> he gives, at the end of verse 28, he doesn't become weary, he isn't tired, his understanding is inscrutable. I'll be honest, I had to load that word up. Full disclosure. Didn't mean what I thought it meant. <laughs> I'm sorry you got a pastor that has to look words up. It means he's in, it's impossible for us to fully understand him or his ways. Isaiah would kind of add to that a little bit further, chapter 55. If you want to flip over, you can see. Look at what he says in Isaiah 55, verse 8 and verse 9. Here he's not talking about God. Here Isaiah is actually quoting God. Isaiah 55 Verse 8, he says, for my thoughts, God is speaking, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. 
For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. We may not always understand why God allows certain things. We may not always understand why God allows wars to rage and atrocities to happen halfway around the world as is currently taking place. We may not understand why God allows viruses to take so many lives and create such isolation. We may not always understand the details in the valley moments that come in our lives. My simplified understanding is that God didn't create it that way. Genesis 1 and 2 he created it to be far different than what we experience today. But when sin came in Genesis 3, which God allowed because he created us with free will, rather than exterminating us and starting over and hoping no one would notice, he has allowed the consequences of sin to run its course so that for all of eternity, every single person in heaven, on earth, and below, all who have lived and all who have died will know forever God's plan A in Genesis 1 and 2 was always better than the enemy's plan B in Genesis 3. And we suffer the consequences today. And we have the valley moments that come in our lives. But there God meets us. Verse 30, verse 31. Isaiah closes by answering the question, so what do we do next? He says, though youths grow weary and tired, back in Isaiah 40, verse 30. The youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly. Yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength, and they will mount up with wings like eagles, and they will run and not get tired, and they will not walk and not become weary. Isaiah's answer is, in the valley, which seemingly has drawn you faster than you can possibly handle, you need to wait there for the Lord. There are sort of two, two variances to that. In one sense, Isaiah is looking to that future victory when Jesus would come again and establish for everyone to see without doubt that he is Lord. Right, That one day that victory is going to come, that Jesus is going to return, and the whole entire world and everyone who's lived in it is going to recognize that he is the Lord, that he is victorious. So in a sense, he's looking ahead to that. Revelation chapter 21, verse 4, reminds us of what that day is going to look like whenever John the apostle is writing. And he says at the very close of Revelation, the next to the last chapter, he says a verse, a passage that many of you are familiar with. He says in Revelation 21, 4, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain for the first things have passed away Isaiah says just wait for the Lord because man if you're a follower of Jesus there's going to come a time that is never going to end when it's going to be evident that he's victorious and so don't throw in the towel don't cut and run don't bail out don't give up don't listen to the voices don't follow the crowd just wait for the Lord <laughs> But not everybody has enough patience to wait for that day. And so there's also a connotation that when Isaiah says to wait for the Lord, that means that he's going to be a help presently right here. And that word wait means to wait with expectation. You ever gone to lunch and you beat the person ahead of, 
that you're supposed to meet, you kind of got there ahead of them, and you're sitting at the table at Papa's or Wiley's or somewhere else, and, and you're sitting there, and you're thinking, man, they're never late. I don't know where they are. It's like a couple minutes past noon, and they're supposed to be here at noon, but, but, but I know they're coming because they always show up, all right? It's that expectation. You're waiting, but you're waiting with an expectation. You know they're going to come here, and you know they're going to show up, and you know you're going to get ribs, right? You know you're going to get fried shrimp. You know you're going to get your lunch plate. You're waiting with an expectation. That's the way you wait. You're waiting, not yet, but there is an expectancy that they're going to come sometime soon. That's kind of, I think, what Isaiah is talking about here. It's the same kind of waiting as a kid on Christmas Eve who has to wait, but they know next day is going to blow their mind. It's like the mother in childbirth, and she's in the midst of labor pains, and it is grueling, and it is the valley, but she knows she's going to hold a bundle of joy in just a matter of moments. And it's going to be worth the wait. It's that kind of waiting. It's the waiting when the farmer plants the seed and he goes through storms and he goes through drought, but he knows there's going to come a time at harvest when he's going to reap that harvest and he's going to have the product that he's waiting for. That's what Isaiah is saying here. He says, the midst of the valley, just wait. Wait for the Lord. Wait with expectancy, not just for out there when you're going to win, but also right here because his presence is undeniable for those who know him. I will never leave you, and I will never forsake you. That's the hope that comes in the draw of the valley. Jesus would say to his disciples in Matthew chapter 11, the one place in Scripture where he would describe himself, if you ever wondered what Jesus looks like, he describes himself. The one place in the Bible where the New Testament where he describes himself is in Matthew chapter 11, but he doesn't describe his stature, his height, skin tone, any of that kind of stuff. He describes his heart. Matthew 11, verse 29, he says, take my yoke upon you, learn from me. Hey, I don't know what you've heard about Jesus. I don't know what your coworker may have told you about Jesus or about God. I don't know what you've seen on some late night television show that sort of fell short of all the accurate <laughs> details of Jesus. I don't know what you've heard about Jesus, but here's how he describes himself. He says, take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and I'm humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Take my yoke upon you, or for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You go up to verse 28. This, this is why he says what he says in verse 28. So come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. That's the invitation today. He says, come to me. Judah, there's going to come a day because you didn't listen when you're going to be in a land that's not your own in exile. And it's going to be horrible. And it's going to be the consequence of your sin. But just wait on the Lord. Come to me. John chapter 6, Jesus is talking to a group of his followers and he shared some hard words about what it means to follow him. John 6, you can check it out on your own. Some of those followers decide to cut and run because it was just too hard to follow Jesus. And he looks at his disciples and he says, what about you? Are you going to leave too? <laughs> and Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go but you? And maybe even to you today, where you feel like the draw to the valley has been a little harder than you can keep up with, and you feel stressed, and you feel broken, 
And there may be a loss that you've experienced over these 18 months that you still haven't been able to fully grieve. Maybe when you feel you're at the end of the rope and you're trying to help people that you don't see the effects of it and you're this close to saying, you know what, I don't think I can do it anymore. God says, just wait on me. It's not an empty waiting. Wait on me because I see you. I'm the everlasting God who holds all power, who sees the beginning from the end, including you and your valley, and I am going to meet you there and lead you out in my time if you just wait today. Let's pray. Heads bowed, eyes closed for some of you today. Maybe you need to talk to God about this waiting time. Adam's going to come and begin to to play before we take the Lord's Supper. Maybe for you, you can, just, you can just come to Jesus the way he invites you to, Christian. And don't come empty-handed. Bring that stress and bring that worry and bring that doubt and bring that grief and bring that loss. Bring that struggle. Bring that discouragement. Bring that fear. And as he invites you today, man, what an amazing thought that the God of heaven and earth who created us doesn't stiff arm us, but he invites us. When you answer that call and you come to him, just bring all of that and entrust it to him. For those of you that have never given your lives to Jesus, maybe you've begun to think about this recently. Maybe someone invited you today, or maybe even in this moment, you've thought, you know what, I, I didn't know this is the way God was. I always thought God was just mad at me all the time, or he didn't want anything to do with me. I never knew God was this way. I never knew that he actually loves me, and that he, he actually wants the best for me. And I never really knew that God is personal, and that he wants a relationship with me, and that the whole reason Jesus died was to pay for my sin. Well, if that's you, then today you can begin that brand new relationship with the God who created you that is so significant that he, he calls you family. <laughs> I mean, you'll become his son, you'll become his daughter, but it's on his terms and not yours. And it comes when we surrender and when we admit our sin, Jesus, I'm a sinner and I've blown it. But then it also comes when we place our faith in Jesus. But Lord, I know you've died to pay for it. And when you say, Lord, I surrender, I surrender myself to you today. Help me to follow you. It's when we pray a prayer like that, when we entrust ourselves to Christ, that he does forgive and that he takes over. Lord, I pray today for those that have never trusted you, that today they'll see their need for Jesus, that he's the only one we can turn to. Lord, all that we have that is good is because of you. All of the hope that we have in the midst of the struggle is because of you. And Lord, for those that don't know you today, give them the courage right where they sit. God, to see everything change because they trust themselves to Jesus. They come just like he says. And they pray and admit their sin and invite him to forgive. Lord, for those of us that have made that decision, God, who else would we turn to but you in days like this? And Lord, thank you that you are our hope. Thank you that you are our peace, that you are our strength, that you are our victory, that you are our life. Lord, may we remember that and that it started long before we ever showed up. And in many ways, it started in a little room when you, Jesus, were with your disciples, reminding them that it would be your body given, your blood shed, so that we could have forgiveness in the first place. And so, Lord, today we come. And we thank you that you would invite us to do that. 
Bless this time as we take your Lord's Supper. In Jesus' name.